Welcome to The Dish, the culinary travel podcast focusing on the stories behind world-famous foods. We are your hosts, Tom and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us for tasty histories, destination food guides, and more. In this episode, What is Goin' Cuisine? We talk about the history of some of the best dishes to try. A rich layered dessert with a Portuguese Goin' story behind it. Plus, Goa's favourite hooch, Fanny. Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Dish. Hope you're hungry. I know I am. I know where we're going today. It's not a surprise for me. Actually, if you've read the title of this podcast, it's probably not a surprise for you either, but you might not know some of the foods that we're going to be talking about today. That's it, unless you accidentally just have run on from the previous episode and are going to be surprised. Although there's going to have been a little introduction before we started this telling people what it is, isn't Uh, it? But no, I I don't think they'll specifically know the types of food that we're talking about because it's quite a unique place with unique food. One of them I think they'll definitely know, which we'll mention a bit later on. But yes, today we are visiting India, but very specifically the state of Goa. And Goan cuisine is just completely different from all other Indian cuisine. Yep, absolutely. Uh, We spent two and a half months-ish traveling around India. And when we hit Goa, we were like, whoa, we were totally surprised by the difference in the cuisine there and very pleasantly surprised, I have to say. Yeah, it's like a whole different cuisine from the rest of India. I mean, there's lots of variations across India. So, I mean, you'd say Punjabi is very different from South Indian, but it's just goes so small. It's like a really, really tiny little coastal state sort of halfway up the western coast of India. And yet it's like a completely different cuisine. Well, I think the thing is possibly, I mean, for me at least, when we decided to head to Goa, we were doing it for a bit of a break from uh, the regular sort of India tourist thing. We knew that it was like a hot spot for tourists to go. So it was like we'd been doing a lot of off the beaten path sort of stuff. And we knew Goa was like a beach resort sort of place that, you know, is a bit more developed and a little bit more used to tourists coming through. So I expected it to be a little bit more touristy food, you know, when you're going to just get more of your burgers and, you know, club sandwiches and stuff like that. You know, I was expecting it to be a bit more touristy. I wasn't expecting it to be its own little unique cuisine in itself. Yeah. But of course, it makes sense that uh, every part of India before tourism turned up had their own food. Of course. And so that's uh, fortunate that when you go to Goa, you can still very easily access the traditional cuisine and you're not going to be just pounded with tourist food. So, yeah, which is fantastic because I love Goan cuisine. It's probably after Punjabi, Punjabi Goan cuisine. That's probably my two favorite types of Indian food. Mm-hmm. But that's so many things. It's hard to really pin it down to, to two things. It's, it's cruel and mean to yeah, even say such a thing. Yeah, it's crazy. It's- too big and too vast to even put numbers on it. Yes. But of course, going cuisine, just like any cuisine around the world, really is a very rich combination of its history and its environment. Being located in a tropical part of India, right on the coastline, you'll find a lot of seafood. Uh, there's lots of rice and plenty of coconuts and coconut milk type dishes going on. Mm-hmm. Its exact position on the Indian subcontinent led to a tradition of curries 
because, of course, there's lots of different spices in India and they got thrown around and curries are a traditional type of food. So not surprisingly, that affected Goa very much. But Goa's colonial past, being ruled by the Portuguese for quite a few hundred years, uh, that is actually one of the things that created the most exciting blending of this sort of East meets West situation. So yeah, you've got all the Indian influences, you've got the local, just that's what they happen to have on the ground. They've got these fruits, these vegetables, this is what they got. And yeah, then you've got the Portuguese as well. And it's completely different because uh, Portugal just brought a whole variety of cooking yeah. styles and different ingredients that they wanted people to use and dishes they wanted to emulate. Yeah, I think it was much just a much different influence than what the British brought on the rest of India. So that's the thing. It's a uh, quite unique because of that Portuguese influence. Yeah, that's right, because most of the rest of India was all ruled by the English, and it's just this one tiny little state that was ruled by the Portuguese for a while. So yeah, definitely a unique culinary destination. And on the whole, you're going to find, of course, those curry dishes, uh, but with this Portuguese twist. So this sort of thing like they use pork, whereas most of the rest of the country don't use pork. It's because actually 95% of the population of Goa are Christians, whereas most of the rest of India are Hindus or Muslims or Sikhs. Mm -hmm. So that makes a really big difference. They're actually getting pork dishes and lots of use of vinegar. They have lots of very sour and spicy dishes Mm. because vinegar in cooking is something and wine in cooking is something that the Portuguese do all the time. And so they sort of inherited that. They didn't have a lot of wine there because it's really hot and they can't make wine. So they started using vinegar as a replacement for wine for some dishes. But we'll get into some of that as we go along. Some other Goan dishes, aside from the curries, are quite clearly just adaptations of traditional Portuguese dishes using whatever they could get locally or whatever was being imported cheaply. So you've got dishes like feijoada, which is the classic Portuguese pork and bean stew. That's actually something you will find in Goa, although it might not be something you find very easily. But it's a cheap and simple dish. Absolutely. So it's something people are eating, and, and that's a dish that you'd find in Portugal and in Brazil and lots of other colonies. And also, they have Goan sausage, which is very similar to Portuguese chorizo. So, and it was yum. And although there's loads of different ingredients that make up the taste of Goan cuisine and make things taste like local dishes, uh, there's two really essential ones, in my opinion, from doing all the research on this and actually seeing how these dishes are made. These seem to be the ones that are like, this is Goan food if you've got this in it. Uh, Coconut vinegar, specifically, and also rechelado masala. I'll just quickly talk about coconut vinegar first, because obviously the reason they have this is because coconuts are super easy to find. Yeah, look up a tree. There it is. Actually, look at the bottom of a tree. They're there too. So apparently they're making vinegar from coconuts. I'd never heard of that. I really didn't know how they do this, and I haven't gone into huge amounts of depth because we have a lot to cover in this episode, but that is apparently the thing that they're doing. They're, uh, mm. I guess they're, they leave it to ferment, just like you would with anything else, just like you would with old white wine that had gone off, and then what's left is vinegar. So, yeah. Interesting. I assume it's a similar sort of process. I guess it's kind of the influence, because don't they have that, uh, there's like a, out in the backwaters, they've got a coconut toddy thing that they have. So I guess maybe it was like sort of an influence from the toddies, that alcoholic coconutty yeah, drink Yeah, because like had. any alcohol like that, eventually it would go off yeah. and turn into vinegar. It's possible. I mean, toddy is definitely something you can find in Goa, but it's actually more traditionally from Kerala. Yeah, it is. And further south. So, yeah, but we'll definitely talk about some alcohol-based stuff later on, which might lead us to figure some of this out. Yay, booze! Yeah, there's there's always got to be some sort of booze, uh, especially in Goa. 
It's <laughs> definitely some booze. So the fact that it's made from coconut, just like any type of vinegar, you've always got those flavors that were with the original product. So white wine vinegar tastes a little bit whiny and malt vinegar tastes a little bit malty. Oh. <laughs> so not surprisingly, using coconut vinegar in dishes adds a slight tropical hint to any dish. But the most important ingredient that I think it sort of defines a lot of going food, not everything, but a lot of things, is the rechado masala, which is a red goan spice mix paste, which is used to create the flavors like as a base for curries. And it's also used as stuffing inside sort of fish and mm, those sort of things. It's so like, very red. It's uh, very, 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 very red. The word rachado is Portuguese for stuffing. Oh, there you go. To be stuffed. So that's why, that's where it comes from. So once again, straight away, the mix, it's like it's a Goan spice with lots of local Goan spices in it, but it's a Portuguese word pretty much. Um, masala, obviously not. That's an Indian word. Yes. So, yeah, the spice mix actually gained its name due to how the spices were used. So yeah, as I said, they stuff this inside fish. They do use it for lots of other things, but a very simple dish is just to grill a fish with this paste stuffed inside it. Yeah. And that's it. So super, super easy. And that's how it ended up with the name. So the red color, of course, comes from ground red chilies. Not surprisingly, this is a spicy paste. Uh, Some of the other important ingredients that are in it are cumin, cloves, cinnamon, black pepper, garlic, and a bit of the coconut vinegar Mm -hmm. straight away. And also to balance all that out, they put palm jaggery, or today they actually use cane sugar quite a lot of the time because it's a lot cheaper. But um, this thing, palm jaggery, is another ingredient that's quite important. It's like the traditional sweet sugary thing they used to make these really dense blocks well they still make them today so they mix sugar with palm sap from the local date palms which is also sweet yep they mix those two things together it turns into like this hard hard block of sweetness and you just chip bits off the outside and you throw it in and it's sort of different from just having straight up sugar so the blend of spices of the rachado masala give this really distinct go and taste And it's different from other sorts of curries in other parts of India. Because, I mean, you think about what's missing from this. They don't have ginger in it. They don't have paprika. They don't have cardamom. They don't have coriander. It's like, so, I mean, they use fresh coriander, but they don't have ground, they don't have ground coriander powder in this spice. Which, and these are all typical things that you expect in Indian food in other parts of India. Yeah. So it's very specific. Like, these are the spices we use. This is our blend. This is how we do it. Though sour is the main sort of flavor you'll find in a lot of dishes, the other sort of varieties of curries that are not sour will be the coconut-based ones, something like kaldin, which is more at the sweet end of the spectrum. Yeah. So not everything spicy, but yeah. Quite, but I mean, yeah, I was surprised to find that quite spicy and quite sour. Yeah. Compared to other curries we'd had around the country. For a lot of the dishes, and we'll get into some of those specific dishes as we get through this, and we... Uh, might identify some reasons why this happened. So other local ingredients, just very quickly, uh, associated with the the sour flavor and the sweet and sour flavors. Uh, Kukum is a fruit that's similar to a mangosteen. So they use that in some of the dishes. Messy. So messy. (laughs) Crazy. Oh, but love it. It actually has like a sweet and sour flavor. So it's a little bit more sour than a mangosteen, which is quite sweet, really, but with a tiny bit of sourness. This is a bit more sourness to it. And also tamarind, which people may have heard of before, uh, very popular across all of tropical Asia and South India, although apparently it actually originated in Africa. Oh, actually, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think I've read that before. So, yeah, the tamarind, if you might know the paste, if you haven't actually seen it, it's weird. It's like a weird brown hanging long fruit. It looks like a like a weird lumpy 
like a it's like a gourd, kind of like a yeah, weird almost. gourd, but that, just yeah, smaller. Small, yeah. yeah. I don't know. They're very strange. That's very strange and super, super sour, but such a distinctive sourness. Like when something's got tamarind in it, you can really taste it. So let's talk about some typical dishes. Now, the most famous one and probably the one that everyone's heard of or almost everyone's heard of is, of course, Vindaloo. Yes. So the you- late night snack of a drunken Brit. <laughs> Or the late night massive meal of a drunken bread. Yeah, not quite a snack. One in the morning. Yeah, it's pretty filling stuff. Of course, in England, it's normally served ludicrously spicy, like over the top, way too spicy. It's like a challenge to eat it. Is it like you're just trying to like sweat out the booze? I think it's just drunk people being like, oh, I can eat hotter than you. (laughs) Seriously. I used to work in a Bangladeshi restaurant in England. They used to make vindaloo. And there was this other dish that's hotter than vindaloo called fal which is literally twice as hot as Vindaloo. And English Vindaloo is already much hotter than Goan Vindaloo or any of the Goan Vindaloos we had. And they would just come in like once every couple of months and it would be who could finish the dish first. They ordered four portions of fowl, rice, that was it, and beer. And yeah, whoever could finish the dish first won like Curry it was like hero of the legend. night. Yeah, yeah, curry legend of the night. Yeah, we weren't running this competition. They literally just, the four of them kept coming in to do this <laughs> just to show off who could win. So, yeah, it was like a big challenge thing. But if you didn't know, I mean, it's very popular in England, but it's actually a Goan dish. It's not just Indian in general or anything. It's specifically from Goan. Yeah, because, I mean, I I think we've discussed in a previous episode where, like, chicken tikka masala is uh, actually... Probably invented in Scotland. Yeah, so so there are a few dishes, curries, that have actually been invented in, like, Great Britain in some way. But this one, Vindaloo, is very much actually comes from India. Yeah, so... We are going to go probably on a full episode on Vindaloo because I think there'll be a fun and interesting story to that. Mm-hmm. So just saying, it's definitely one of the most important dishes to try. So look out for it. And we'll probably do a full episode on chicken tikka masala as well or butter chicken or both. Yeah. Because they're both really famous dishes that may or may not really have been invented in India, but then taken back to India. So we're going to do a bit of investigation on that. Don't know for sure right now. Not 100% because we haven't done full research, but definitely yeah, some stories a, there. could be quite a dull tale. Yeah, it could be terrible and then we won't do it at all. But, you know, we'll see. Let's talk about another dish, ambotik. It's a sour and spicy curry which combines red chilies and the kokum, which I talked about, the fruit that's actually naturally sweet and sour. They mix that up with tomatoes, onions, and some masala powder to make the sauce, and they throw loads of fish in with this. Specifically shark. And this was interesting, like something that we had down that western coast. Mm -hmm. You could get shark. We had like Tikka shark, like just roasted in the tandoori oven. And it was quite frequently spicy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah, if you haven't ever had shark before, it is, it's got a little bit of a different texture to your standard fish. I mean, I would call it like the pork of fish. Yeah, it's, it's a little meaty. It's firm, it's meaty, like swordfish and shark, both very sort of firm, white flesh, white gray flesh. Mm. So yeah, if you looked at it from a distance, you'd think it could just be cubes of pork. Yeah. When it's cooked. When it's not cooked, it's a It's quite it obviously like fish. a fish. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, when actually cooked, it sort of goes like that. And but yeah, certainly oh, interesting a- to try a bit of shark if you're in India. It's, uh, it's certainly a unique experience. Yeah. So that's one to look out for, Ambot Tick. We're going to get through a few. Some of these dishes have more stories than other, but uh, a few just to start off with that are just dishes you should look out for, that you should try, that don't have a specific story behind them. Uh, zakuti is actually spelled with an X, so X-A-C-U-T-I. This dish is usually made either with chicken or pork. 
and has a pretty complex sauce, which incorporates some unusual Indian spices, including white poppy seeds mm-hmm. so, and sliced or grated coconut and lots of red chilies. Of course. <laughs> of course. Sometimes they use crab in this rather than chicken or pork. So Ooh, it's like crab tarry. Sort of interesting. And sometimes they thicken the sauce up with eggs. Oh, um, uh, that would make sense. Yeah. So just like yeah. mix a bit of egg in and it sort of, yeah, just goes a bit thicker. Yeah, because there was this one restaurant, because we stayed in Goa for a bit, actually. We got a nice little beachfront bungalow sort of hut thing and we pretty much found this one restaurant that we fell in love with and we're like, we're just going to go back and work our way down the menu. And I actually, I remember that dish was one of my favorites. It was very good. They also made an amazing naan bread. I think they are still there. Oh, I did a quick look there? on Google Maps. They've updated the hotel a lot, so I don't know if the kitchen will be the same guys cooking. It was a while ago. This is like five years ago we were there. I'll uh, try and remember to add a link in the article, because there's a full article on Goan Food that we've put together at foodfuntravel.com slash Food, G-O-A-N. And I'll, yeah, I'll see if I can put the link into that restaurant. Yeah. So you can was- see a few of the pictures of uh, the food that, that we took while we were there. And you can see, I think one of the dishes, it, it does look like it, it could have been thickened with eggs from memory of the pictures we got up there. But yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. So, I mean, the crazy thing is that everyone does their recipe a little bit differently. So with these, it's like trying to find recipes that are the same. It's like, no, this person's adding this, this person's adding this. There's no like, it's not like Bologna where this is the exact recipe and you will never deviate from this. This is the official recipe in the official guide to Bologna. Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, Zakuti, definitely one to look out for. Another really interesting dish that is crazy spicy and crazy sour. It's called Balchao. And unlike Vindaloo, this was, it's like thick, thick sauce. It's deep, dark, intense red and lots and lots of chili and lots of vinegar. I mean, once again, I've seen different recipes, but the one we had had was intense. Like it was so thick and so dark. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, I found some information as to why that happened, why that dish is like that. So when we went out to discover this dish, we actually were touring the area in some of the smaller villages away from the tourist beaches. We got on a scooter and we headed out there and we just saw this little roadside restaurant and we didn't really know what we were looking for. We just went, well, he's got food. And there's a couple of locals in there, so why not? Always mm-hmm. a good reason to try something. And, well, we were hungry. That helps. It does help. It's quite so, a common occurrence. <laughs> yeah, happens a lot. So, yeah, we're just like, what have you got on the menu that we haven't tried before? Oh, okay, what's this? Bao chow. Had no idea what that was going to be. And he was like, well, it's spicy. And we're like, that's fine. Bring it. We'll do it. Uh, so, read up a bit about this. It's actually got a bit of a complicated history. A little bit of an interesting one, this one. It's believed that the dish... It didn't come from Goa specifically. Uh, The main theory goes that actually Portuguese sailors brought certain types of shrimp paste originally to Macau from Southeast Asia. This is getting like really weird and complicated straight away, right? So Macau didn't necessarily have this type of uh, shrimp and fish paste until the Portuguese turned up with it to Macau around about 1557. So this dish could have been created initially in Macau, not in Goa. So, but it gets when a bit- did the Portuguese uh, like t- colonize or you know take over Goa? Yeah, um, around about the same time. Okay, sixteenth century. So they were doing all of their major explorations around the sixteenth century, and that's where they they went and they got Goa, and they went to 
the went to Macau as well and a few other places. Um, Malaysia, I believe, was one of them. And yeah, I can't remember all of them. Didn't write them all down, but definitely Macau and Goa were two of the important ones. So what happened was they turned up to Macau with shrimp paste and the locals were like, okay, we can use this, but obviously we don't want to pay to import it all the time. So maybe we can make our own. So this spurned the creation of a local shrimp paste in Macau called Balichau. It's almost the same word. Mm -hmm. And it became a really popular source for making certain dishes, including porco balichau tamarindo, which is a pork and tamarind stew with this shrimp paste mixed in. So it's very much like a bit of a Portuguese dish Mm. that then they were adding fish paste and tamarind to. Yep. So it actually had some very similar characteristics. This was a really spicy, salty and sour dish. And it's believed that it was, or something similar, or the concept at least, was transported back to Goa from Macau by the Portuguese sailors who had tried it in Macau. And they didn't take the shrimp paste, though. So they're like, they took the name and they took the like stewing up some pork in this really thick sauce with some tamarind making it sour. And of course, they may be switching this out to be using vinegar in Goa, even though they have both. So maybe using a bit of both, depending on the recipe. And yeah, they, they took this back and then started making it Goa. They're like, well, I like this dish from a cow. Can you make it here? How would you make it? Oh, it's roughly like this. Don't have any shrimp paste. Fine. Okay. We'll just make it like this. It's really thick strong dish so uh, the idea of the really thick sauce is apparently to they can actually keep seafood in it for a few days without refrigeration Uh. so that's sort of what it is so it's like this really dense sour sauce they're effectively pickling the fish or shrimp that they put in it so that it will last for a few days and then they just reheat it whenever they want to eat it okay we did find that a few times where they had certain cooking preparations and methods were purely to Give it longevity. Yeah. So it can just be preserved for a few days. Yeah. So yeah, to handle that tropical heat in a time where there was no refrigeration and no ice supply either. Like, what are we going to do? We've got lots of shrimp that was caught today. We can't eat it all. We need to preserve it. So this is one way to do it. So apparently that's what happened. Cool. Yeah. So quite a weird, like a very weird story. But yeah, the name seems so connected and the style seems so connected that people think it's definitely based on the same thing. From Macau. Yeah. Interesting. And that's just, a, it's a really good story to show how trading changed everything. Yeah, it so really quickly. Did. So, yeah. All right. On to another dish. This one is called caldin or caldin, which I mentioned earlier is a bit of a milder curry. So, often served with prawns or can have fish. And I mean, I found this really tasted quite similar to Thai curry. It was like a yellow curry mm-hmm. and yeah, light and, and coconutty and pretty tasty. But yeah, it's made with the sweet and sour kokum fruit or it's supposed to be. Who knows? People making it cheaply in restaurants might just be using vinegar and sugar. Yeah. I mean, you just don't know um, or tamarind and sugar. So yeah, it's a creamy, coconutty, sweet and sour taste. As It's got all of those flavor groups that you would have in Thai cuisine. Yeah, it. and it was a little bit of a reprieve from the heavier sort of curries. that The we intense, pre- spicy, sour. Yeah. Yeah, so if you want something light and you're not looking to try those crazy intense curries, Kaldin is definitely the one you want to go for. Another dish I mentioned right at the start that is quite obviously a fusion dish of Portuguese and Goan is the feijoada. Of course, it's just the trish. This is the traditional Portuguese dish of pork and beans that's slow cooked. But what they did to make it going 
is instead of making it in like a tomato-y sauce, in a stew sauce, or using wine, they're using coconut milk and tamarind as the base. Mm-hmm. Pork, beans, coconut, and tamarind. Totally sort of different. Uh, I mean, it's a heavy comfort food, but like the flavor is that's completely different from just like the salty, heavy comfort yeah. food thing that you get from the Portuguese version. And it is so funny that they do have a lot of these because, yeah, a lot of these curries are a little bit, you know, full flavored and like thicker sauces, and which seems like a really crazy concept to have in a place that's so freaking hot. Yeah. <laughs> but it actually works. I, I don't know. It's like this, like. You put so much heat into your body that it all like, sweat it out. Yeah, it just sweats everything out. It actually it works to have this heat in a really hot climate. I don't know. It works. It's it's fine. But yeah, it's a bit odd. But yeah, the feijoada won't be spicy. It's not supposed to be. I mean, people no. might make it spicy, but yeah, some of these other dishes that we talked about definitely, definitely spicy. And I mean, it's that old story that the reason they add chili to things is because they're using old meat or old fish and it covers up the flavor. Yeah, exactly. Or it just basically takes a dish that otherwise has very little use of other spices and just makes it hot. So that just covers up everything. Yeah. So maybe that's 100% true. Maybe that's not 100% true. I don't know. But yeah, it's definitely one reason to make things really, really spicy. Some other dishes that aren't sort of stew or curry based. Uh, I mentioned at the start, fish rechado which is the fish stuffed with the recciato masala and just grilled on the barbecue. Super simple. Yep. You got all the flavors of Goa, nice fresh grilled fish, done. Um, or also another one you can look for, uh, cafrial, which are chicken legs coated in a very thick and dark spicy paste and then fried and the sauce sort of just clings to the outside of the skin. And you can't go wrong with that. No. No, not at all. It's totally, totally fine. As we mentioned before, Goan sausage which is the, the Goan version of Portuguese chorizo. Really not a lot to say on this. It's very similar to, uh, to Portuguese chorizo, except I found most of the ones we, we had were softer. Because apparently uh, something else we learned when, when I went to Mallorca, more humidity means the sausages don't dry out. So yeah. you don't have that really dry cured sausage. And so it's probably very difficult to dry cure a sausage in Goa. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Super humid. So you're going to have a softer sausage that's been cured. And we actually ended up having this on a pizza. Yeah, we did. And it was awesome because uh, we were staying in Palalam Beach in the south part of Goa. And I mean, I think after spending almost three months in India at that point, we were like, it's fine to have some pizza. <laughs> we don't have to have curry every day. I ate that pizza and I also ordered a couple of, they had these great, spinach and mushroom burgers that they were making on the beach and i was like yes please because you don't have to have a curry every day don't feel guilty people it's fine their spinach and mushroom burgers on the beach i wish i knew what that place was called this is like the internet was so bad in india when we were there we couldn't really work or do anything when we were in goa we literally just sat around trying to do things on on our blog and and did stuff offline pretty much yeah which was great it was, uh, yeah, it was like, nice. Mm, Meg starts looking up tickets back to Goa. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm sure the internet's improved a lot in the last five years. It probably has. So that was cool having it on a pizza. You can also just order the sausage just cooked and then you just eat it. But that's a lot of sausage. It is a lot. It was that's nice on the said. pizza. I liked it on the pizza. Sausage on pizza. Yeah, did a pretty good job of it. Um, definitely, this has not been an exhaustive list of Goan cuisine, but you can check out foodfuntravel.com slash Goa podcast and find out a little bit more about our trip to Goa and some of the other foods that you can try. But 
to finish up this episode. And I say finish up because actually these are the two big stories. We've rattled through quite a few things, but actually dessert and drinks are the two big stories for this mm-hmm. episode with some fun histories behind them. So, first of all, let's get our booze on. Booze time. Let's talk about fenny, which is made from cashew nuts or sometimes from coconuts. And this one we discovered just because there was, well, we were staying at these beach huts. We mentioned before we stayed right on the beach. We we're actually paying like $18 a night to stay in this beach hut. Yeah, beachfront, beach with a balcony. I mean, they were basic. It was basic, but, you know, it had a shower and it filled up with sand all the time. Because <laughs> it was very much beach right? It was very beach, but we were actually on the first floor, so we had a balcony that overlooked the whole beach, yeah, which is really cool. cool. And yeah, it was, a, it was a nice way to chill after all of the insanity of like the big cities of India going to Kolkata and Delhi and, yep. and all these other places. So just coming to the beach was, was really nice. And it was the end of the season, and that's the other reason it was super cheap. We went in like late April, early May. Yeah, things were starting to close down, but it meant we got like super discounts. And actually, back then the they actually physically dismantled the beach huts. We had one of the last standing beach huts actually, because all the others, because they pull it down for storm season, for monsoons and stuff like that, they just pull them all down and then they build them all back up again. Yeah. I'm sure. I, I honestly, I'd have to have a look to see if they have more permanent structures there now. I think like some of the hotels are made of stone. Yeah. Some of them now, so they've got stone buildings. But um, yeah, it was a mix. There was a few stone buildings and there was a, a few less permanent huts that they would pull down. And we, we actually saw people pulling these down as we were there. Mm. So we're like, lucky we didn't stay in that place because that place is closed now. Very closed. <laughs> the huts are gone. Yeah. So pretty crazy. Yeah. Two of the really cool things that I remember from the balcony was, uh, well, when they turned up with a whole Bollywood film crew and started filming just outside our apartment. Yeah, they did. That was crazy. We just sat on the balcony watching them do their dancing and everything on the beach. It was incredible. Yeah. Huge, huge, like, super lights because they were filming at, like, sunset and just after sunset. And a massive crowd, locals and tourists just jumping around and getting really excited about the fact this film crew was there. And it was the full Bollywood experience. They were doing all the dancing. Oh, yeah. All the moves, all the miming. (laughs) I'm sure they sing the songs for real somewhere and then they, they dub them on. But, you know, yeah, it was super cool. I love that. Uh, one of the other cool experiences that is more relevant to food is us drinking the fenny, the, the cashew-based spirit up on the balcony and just sitting there watching the sunset and trying this stuff out. Yeah. And it was highly recommended by, you know, quite a few people, both, you know, locals and expats that were living in the area and, and stuff like that. And so, I think you just, we just mixed it with lemonade, didn't we? Yeah. I think one of the, the girls who was working at the apartment said like, yeah, you can get this and what we do is we mix it with lemonade. But like traditional lemonade, not like Sprite. Yeah, You can no. mix it with Sprite, but they have like a yellow lemonade that's more lemony. Yeah. And they like to mix it with that. Apparently, you can also mix it with Coke. But anyway, let's talk about what exactly is fenny. Cashews actually didn't turn up in Goa until the Portuguese introduced cashews from Brazil. So they'd already gone off to Brazil and then they turned up to Goa in around 1560 with cashews. Mm-hmm. Somewhere around 1560 to 1565 and perfect climate for growing them. So cashew nuts became a big old thing in Goa and they used them in food and they used them to make this spirit. Uh, prior to cashews turning up, it's almost certain they use coconuts to make the spirit instead because people still needed their booze. Yep. So they would have been using coconuts and then suddenly they went, eh, we've got all these cashews, what are we going to do with these? They still make coconut fenny today. So it's like you can have coconut fenny or fenny. If it's just fenny, then it's cashew fenny normally, but you should check with the person you're buying it off because you never really know. And it's actually now a 
a geographically protected product of oh. Goa since 2009. So it was when we were there as well, but we, we didn't, didn't realise. Hmm. They obviously weren't publicising it as much, but yeah. So it's not made from cashew nuts, though. So I think this is really what happened because coconut spirits are made from coconut. The cashew nuts are being used for something else because they're a premium product, but the cashew fruit is just waste, really, oh. otherwise. I think you might be able to use cashew fruit for some other stuff, but I don't think it's like a popular ingredient in food or anything. So they've got all of this fruit, and the actual cashew nut itself, I don't know if you've ever seen a photo of cashews. No, I'm literally looking this up right now. Yeah. So it's like this light red, yellowish fruit, and the actual cashew nut is attached to the bottom of the fruit. So it hangs on the tree. And then there's this little packaging, as it were, that's roughly the shape of a cashew nut that encases the actual nut. And literally, that's the nut. So you take that, you break that little bit off the bottom and you open it and that's your cashew nut. Whoa, that's weird. Yep. Look, some of these look like they have little angry man faces on them. Yeah, it's really strange. It's got this little hook just hangs off the bottom of the fruit. And that's where the cashew nut is. All right, you guys are going to have to Google this. Jump on your phones right now and look up cashew fruit because if you haven't seen this before it's like weird looking mushrooms red mushrooms hanging from a tree yeah it's like alien fruit yeah it's pretty strange and you got all this fruit left over once they've harvested the nuts what are you going to do with it well in the traditional method of making cashew fenny the cashew apples are de-seeded and then they are dropped into the stomping area hey which is just a big old rock basin cut into some rock actually they look like capsicums yeah. Like capsicums with little nubs on the end. Capsicums with a, with a hook on the bottom full of cashew. Yeah. The cashew apples are then stomped to release the juice in the same way as you would if you're making wine or whatever. So, yeah. Pretty smart, obvious solution yep. to get the juice out there. Although today, like a modern production, they just use a press because everyone just uses a press these days. Yeah, it's easier. So, yeah. They get the juice out and that's transferred into a large earthen pot called kodem which is buried halfway in the ground and then left for the juice to ferment for several days. So very similar to any sort of traditional winemaking yep. production. We just put, put it, in, it a pot, in a pot, put it in the ground, let it do its yep. thing. Let it just sit there until it turns into booze. These earthen pots today, of course, they've been replaced by plastic drums, uh, blah, 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 modern production, you know. Um, the juice is actually only fermented for about three days. I don't know if this is because the temperature is so warm there that it ferments very quickly. Or if it's just that cashew fruit ferments a lot quicker than, than yep. wine would, than grapes would. I, I don't know why, but apparently it's very quick. Uh, they don't need to add any yeast to it because apparently it's either just natural yeast from the air or whatever. That's on the skins. Just, it's just there or on the skins. I'm not quite sure. I didn't get any information on that. And this fermented liquid after three days that they have is called Nero. And this is then distilled, sometimes double distilled, sometimes triple distilled. Uh, the first distillate of the fermented Nero is called Orak, which sounds very similar to the word arak, which is another very popular alcoholic beverage from distilled beverage from as well. That, yeah, another another spirit, but I don't know if the word has any similarity or connection to mm-hmm. arak. And this comes out the first distillation only about fifteen percent alcohol. So I mean, what you're making here, you're not making wine. You're basically making like cashew fruit beer, pretty much. It's going to be like five percent alcohol or something. You could drink it; it's probably not very pleasant. And then that urak. That has been made to 15% is mixed with some of the original Nero. They don't distill all of it at once. They mix the two together and then they distill it again, apparently. Oh. Which I found strange, but I read a few sources on this and they all seem to think that's how it's done. I hope that's the correct information. And then when that's redistilled, that turns into casulo or casulo, 
uh, which is about 40 to 42%. So just your straight up, straight up moonshine right there. Yep. That is then, if they want to triple distill, they mix that again with the Urak. So they take the second stage and put them together. And then they triple distill to get a final like 45% or above. Weird. Any. Apparently, that's how it's done. I read some very detailed articles on this, and that seems to be the process. Commercial with any today, though, is normally just the double distilled stuff. It's quite unusual to find the triple distilled stuff. Maybe some local artisans are making it. It's not something that we saw. And the finished product is, of course, transparent. But they even occasionally age this in oak barrels. And then you get your classic golden tinted aged Mm. Fenny. Now, there are actually like 4,000 distilleries for Fenny in Goa. And Goa is a really small place. Four thousand is the estimate, but about seventy percent of all of those distilleries and all of the production is actually just home and family use. Uh, okay, so everyone's got a little like still in their backyard. Yeah, so everyone's distilling at home. Maybe they sell a few bottles on the street. Maybe they sell a few bottles to tourists or friends. But it's not like professional just a little production. bit of home hooch. Yeah, lots of home hooch. Um, so yeah, I'm sure they're having a good old time in the villages. We weren't in the villages at night. We only went out there during the day. So I don't know what people would be up to, but. Sounds like there's a lot of fanny going on. And apparently the traditional way to do it, rather than having it with lemonade, is you just drink it neat with some grilled fish on the side. Yeah. That's how you're supposed to be doing it. So yeah, sounds pretty tasty. Mixing it with lemonade or Coke is an option that they recommend to tourists and some locals do because, I mean, some of it's pretty strong and pretty rough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it helps uh, balance out that flavor a little bit. But no, it was quite an enjoyable beverage. Yeah. And either way, no matter how you drink it, I think if you're drinking with a sunset balcony with the beach and the sun going down... Uh, Can't go wrong. I don't think you can go too wrong with that, can you? All right. Our final dish of the day is called bebinka or bebinza. I think it's bebinka, though. Okay. You can get the exact pronunciation. But uh, this is regarded by many sources that I read as the only truly Goan dessert. I'm not sure if that claim is just marketing or not, because it seems unlikely. There's not like loads and loads of desserts in Goa. No. And a lot of the other desserts are things like rice pudding that's spiced, and that seems just Indian, so it's not difficult to say that it's Goan. I mean, it's hard to even get to dessert when you're eating <laughs> Indian food. And, you know, Indians have a, a large array of sweets that they, they yes. like, they are sweet crazy. But I don't know how they ever get around to it because, like, oh, after you had rice and naan and curry and fenny and everything, is like, oh, I don't have room for dessert. But Parada and oh, all these other breads. All just slathered in butter and yums. Yeah. I don't know how you make it desserts, but... Uh, but they, they, they've got desserts everywhere in India, that's for sure. Yeah, but although apparently in Goa not... I mean, they have lots of things, but yeah. This, but they're Indian, not so much yeah, Goan, yeah. Apparently. Yeah. So I don't know if this is true, but yeah, it's a good little marketing statement. But it's believed to have been invented in Goa specifically, but not by a Goan person, but by a Portuguese immigrant. She was actually a nun at the Santa Monica convent in Old Goa, and it's a layered cake. Originally, it started with seven layers, which were meant to represent the seven hills of Lisbon. So it's very specifically like a, a dish to reminisce about home, apparently. When it was first tasted, the, uh, the other people at the institution, some of the stories say like other nuns, some are saying like the bishop or something was there and she took the thing to him. Yep. And he was like, hmm, this is great, but some more layers would be even better. So get on it and go make me a new cake. 
<laughs> she's like, fine, I'm fine. grateful. Well, just make you a character. I don't really do a lot else with my time. I read stuff like the Bible and sit around and it's hot. So, yeah, why not? I'll just make another cake. All right. I'm sure they weren't too busy. It's debated as to what the best amount of layers are. And there's lots of different recipes. So, obviously, seven is the minimum. That's the original. And up to 24 layers, perhaps. So these can be very thin because this gets to be a big cake with just lots of very thin layers. Now, the crazy thing about this dessert is that each single layer is baked individually. So it can take up to eight hours to make it. Well, she did have a lot of time on her hands, apparently. (laughs) And what's in between the layers? So I'm going to explain the exact dish because it's actually really interesting and quite surprising that this is how they figured out how to make this dish. Okay. I literally don't think I've ever heard of this type of process for making a cake before. Really weird. So every layer is made with flour, coconut, milk, sugar, butter G, mm-hmm. mm. and egg yolk. And sometimes they add a bit of nutmeg or cardamom. Or sometimes they just have it more plain. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's an option. Um, and actually, it's a multicolored layer cake. So you'll have one layer that's yellow, the next layer brown, the next layer yellow, and it's just like, it's two colors, two tones, yep. and that's the whole thing. So what they do is they make all the, all the ingredients made the same, but half of the mixture is added, they add caramel to it to give it a dark brown color, yeah. and the other half just stays yellowy, egg yolky color. Plain so cake. yeah, you've got this yellow-brown multi-layer cake. It actually looks sort of cool. Uh, but what's really crazy is how they actually cook these layers to add them together. So the reason it can take like eight hours to cook is because each very thin layer, and maybe a layer is sort of around half a centimeter thick mm-hmm. or eighth of an inch, something like that. They assemble the, they can't assemble the layers after baking. They can't just bake 20 slices of cake and then put them together because they'll be too brittle. They're really thin. They just mm. fall apart. You wouldn't even be able to get them out of the pan. And um, plus they wouldn't fuse together into this sort of cakey puddingy thing. Yeah, because that's actually what I was envisioning. Yeah, but, but they would be so thin. They yeah, would break. It yeah. would be rubbish. So what they actually do is uh, the first layer is poured in, they put it in the oven for 15 minutes, and as soon as it's gone firm, they put a layer of butter on top of that to keep the layers sort of separating, and then they pour the next color of batter on top, and then they bake that for 15 minutes until it's cooked, layer of butter, next layer on top, and as you can see, once you've done that 24 times, 15 minutes per layer, that can be like almost eight hours of baking. Yeah, for sure. Which is insane to make one... And just constantly by the oven for the yep. entire time. In tropical heat. This sounds like the worst sort of cooking to have to do. I don't think she was happy with that bishop. She would have been like, ungrateful I made it for the Seven Hills of Lisbon and you want me to make more layers and you stand by the oven all day. <laughs> yeah, you Dude. do this, bishop. Bishop. What a crazy dessert. Uh, but it's really, really, really popular in Goa, although today a lot of the versions you get are manufactured production and apparently the quality is not great. So most uh, people are like, eh, if it's not being homemade, it's not so great. But it's still such an important dessert that, you know, it's quite easy to find and, and people will, will definitely get it, especially at Christmas. It's a very popular sort of Christmas dessert. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, really, I literally have never heard of baking done like that before. No, no, that's intense. That's pretty unique. Anyway, that wraps it up for our Go and Food episode. Of course, we're going to talk about Vindaloo in another episode at some point. That could be a few months away, though. I'm not quite sure when we're going to do that. Yep. And it's almost Christmas, so next uh, next time we're going to be doing some Christmas stuff. Talking yeah. about some Christmas food and Christmas special episodes. Get you all drooling and, you know, ready for some Christmas feasting. Mm, I like Christmas dinner. 
I'm a fan. So, I'm looking forward to hearing about Christmas dinner and how that all works and the history and stuff. So, that's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Of course, rate and review. If you enjoy the show, leave five stars. If you don't enjoy the show, I, I don't know how you're still here. It's crazy. Still so listening? obviously you made it this listening? far. So it's got to be five stars. I mean, four stars, it doesn't work. People say it works. It doesn't work. It just it knocks you down the ratings and, you know, we don't get new listeners. We don't do more shows. That's how it works. It's a problem for us. So, Give us yeah. five stars for Christmas. Yeah. Five stars for Christmas is a good choice. All right. And of course, subscribe if you haven't done that already. Whatever platform you're on, just subscribe away and then you'll get notifications of new episodes. You know how this works. Yeah. And also, just tell a friend. You got a foodie friend? Tell them about our show. Be like, you know what you want to hear about? You know, you know how you're going on that trip to India? Have a listen to this show. Exactly. Lots of interesting dishes to try and some cool factoid knowledge to just share at your next dinner party about whatever dish that you made. You make yourself your own bibinka cake and it takes you eight hours to bake it and you can explain to everybody what a legend you are for spending eight <laughs> hours in the kitchen baking it. That could work. All right. We'll see you on the next episode of The Dish. Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on your preferred podcast app or channel. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.